So it occurred to me what our graphic is. You got to understand, when I walk up on the stage and people start snickering, I'm like, crap, is my fly down? Like every time, right? Like, all right, but no, it's, oh, okay, they're laughing about the graphics. So yeah, we are starting this morning a new series in 1 Corinthians, subtitled, When Church is a Dumpster Fire. By the way, a bit of trivia, you know where most dumpster fires occur? Tailgate parties. Makes sense, right? You're in a hurry to get to the game. You've got your coals from grilling out. People dump them in the, tr- the dumpster and sets the trash on fire. Listen, have you ever smelled like a super stinky dumpster? Those are, na- right? Imagine that on fire, right? It's just disgusting. Not only does it stink, but it's dangerous. It's self-destructive. And sometimes, unfortunately, a church can be a dumpster fire. I'll tell you about uh, one church that I heard about. I've never visited there. Uh, Maybe you've read about it as well, but I won't tell you the name of it. Uh, But this is what I heard about them. A couple things. One, uh, this church had confusion about gender issues, marriage, divorce, sex, singleness. There was the, there is theological confusion, and so uh, like weird stuff like the resurrection of the dead and stuff like that. They've got weird about. There's parties and factions. They're rallying around like different popular preachers. Uh, there is some pagan religion in the area where this church is, and and some in the congregation are kind of mixing it together with the worship of Jesus. So there's sexual immorality in the church. Like one dude is sleeping with his father's wife. Okay, but 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 look at the next thing that I'll tell you about them. There's a total lack of church discipline. So, like, as this dude's sleeping with his father's wife, they're like, eh, live and let live, you know? And so it's just getting weird that way. Now, we just celebrated communion. Uh, for them, communion was a meal. Some churches do this. You might be familiar. So that's not the problem, that they're celebrating communion as, like, a whole meal. The problem is gluttony and drunkenness. Like, kid you not, at this church, some people go to church to get drunk. Settle in on that, right? Like, they go to church to get drunk. Uh, the gluttony part, since it's a meal, some people are gorging themselves at this church while others go away hungry at this communion meal. Now, they are wonderfully embracing their freedom, but unfortunately, at this church, they're doing it to the detriment of others. There's pride, arrogance, boasting. Oh, they're suing each other in court, and there's tons of division in the congregation. This church is a dumpster fire, and maybe you've read about this church. I just described to you ancient Corinth. That is the church in ancient Corinth 2,000 years ago. They're a mess. Now listen, sometimes as pastors, people come up to us and they'll be like, hey, why can't we just be more like the early church? (laughs) No, 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 don't like that. That is not where we're going. Like you haven't read the New Testament. Like some are okay, but like a lot of them are just a dumpster fire. And so let me tell you a little bit about the background of this church. This, since we're reading 1 Corinthians, let me let you know about them. So here's a map of the ancient world. What you see, that big yellow Asia on the right, that we call that modern-day Turkey. The peninsula on the left is the Greek peninsula. And you see Corinth in the box there on the left. Little dot, red dot to the right of it is where the city 
would be. So they're part of the Roman Empire back in the day, which means religiously they're polytheistic, they're pluralistic. They would worship the pantheon of Greco-Roman pagan idols. That really invaded every aspect of life, by the way, like government affairs and civic festivals, trade unions, everything. Like the, the idolatry seeped into every aspect of life. Now, they were a fairly wealthy city, basically because of their location. If you see where it is, it's this tiny strip of land that connects the Polyponesian part to the south up to the greater Greek peninsula. And so trade flowed through them like crazy. If you're going by land, north or south, you go through Corinth. So location and trade, they're wealthy. Uh, And ship travel going east to west, they might not want to go all the way down around to the south. So they go in that little kind of jetty going in there. Then they dock at Corinth and they take it across land, get on another ship and keep keep going east. So even east-west traffic is flowing through them. It's all about location, right? Think about playing Monopoly. You've got Park Place and Boardwalk with hotels. You're going to be rich, right? That's Corinth. So they're just... They are a very wealthy city. They're influential. So that is the Roman seat of government for that region that they're in. So politically influential. It's very cosmopolitan. A lot of international, like it's really cool cosmopolitan city. And a whole bunch of sexual immorality. So the temple to the Greek god Aphrodite uh, was at one point rumored to have a thousand temple prostitutes. How you worship. So a thousand temple prostitutes. And that was not just isolated to that. So Aristophanes, uh, he turned the term Corinth into a verb. He verbed it, and it means to fornicate. So, so Jack went over to Diane's house last night. Do you know they Corinthian? Like that turn, that's, that's, he turned it into that. So Plato, when he would refer to a prostitute, didn't matter what city the prostitute lived in, he would call her a Corinthian girl. We would say a Pittsburgh girl, right? I'm sorry, I'm bitter. I'm bitter from last week. That's the way it is, right? You get the idea. You get the idea. So, uh, but it, its reputation precedes it, right? So the point is that the city of Corinth is a hot mess. There's idolatry, there's immorality, there's corruption, there's greed. So they've got like the wealth of L.A. They've got the cosmopolitan nature of New York City. They've got the political influence of D.C. And when it comes to sex, they're all Vegas, right? I mean, its place is, now listen, you know what that is? That's a great city for the gospel to invade. Great city for the gospel. And so the gospel did get there. Paul took it there. Now, uh, to talk about Paul for just a moment, you might remember Paul was a Jew, and at first he was no fan of Jesus. He was a persecutor of the early church until God invaded his life. And he became a lover of Jesus. And so God said, okay, you're not only going to be a Christian, you're going to be uh, the first missionary to significantly take the gospel to the Gentile world. And so Paul started on these journeys. His first journey didn't even get onto our map. So Jerusalem would be off to the east. Uh, So the first journey didn't even make it onto the map you're looking at right there. But on his second missionary journey, he got into the upper left of Asia to Troas. He crossed the Aegean Sea, got over to Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, starts working south, and he gets down to Corinth. 
And when he gets down to Corinth, he spends a year and a half there. That would have been around AD 51. Year and a half, that's a good bit of time. By the way, it was there in Corinth that he wrote the two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, that we've recently studied together. He wrote those from Corinth while he was there. Now, while he's there, as he usually did, he has a side hustle. He makes tents. That's how he just kind of feeds himself. But he's really there as a missionary. So his habit was, and he practiced it in Corinth, he would start going to the Jewish synagogue, trying to convince them that Jesus is indeed their Messiah. Well, that went over like a lead balloon, and so eventually he's kicked out of the synagogue. He goes right next door to a God-fearing Gentile, and start sharing the gospel throughout the city. Eventually, he plants a church in Corinth. It's wonderful, wonderful. Now, throughout the years then, I mean, not like thousands, I mean like over five years, there would be tons of big-name Christians teaching in the city. So not only Paul, but Silas, Timothy, Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, Titus, a lot of you don't recognize those names, but just smile and not go, mm, oh yeah, yeah. Like your neighbor doesn't know, right? Fake it till you make it. They don't know. Just anyway, all those big names were had ministered in Corinth. But Paul himself would have a very contentious relationship with this church. During his next missionary journey, the third one, he stayed in Ephesus. Now, if you go from Corinth due east, you get over the coast of Asia, you see Ephesus in a little nook in there. So he stayed in Ephesus in, uh, for about two and a half years. In around 53 or 54, we're not sure, he wrote his first letter to the Corinthian church. And we're not going to be studying that. I know I just confused you. His first letter is actually lost to us. Evidently, it was a very misunderstood letter. It's not scripture, and it's lost. But while still in Ephesians... Uh, Paul starts to learn of some of the misunderstandings in Corinth. He learns of the questions and the problems. I guess we go through this letter in chapter 1, verse 11, we'll learn that there are some travelers who had connections to Corinth who brought Paul word. We'll also learn in chapter 16, verse 17, that the Corinthian church sent an official delegation to Paul with some of their questions. And so from these sources, Paul finds out they're an absolute dumpster fire. So while in Ephesus, now we're about AD 55, he wrote the letter that we'll be studying over the coming months to them. And in it, he will address all those things I listed at the beginning about that hypothetical church. That's Corinth. He will address all those things. And it's an incredibly relevant letter to us. How to be the church in the midst of a messy culture. What to, do, what to do when the mess gets inside to the church. And he'll talk about love, and he'll talk about unity, and how to deal with disagreements, and he'll talk a whole lot about Jesus. It's a very relevant letter for us. It's a great letter, and it solved all their problems. Nope. <laughs> Not so much. So then after he sent this letter, uh, he talks in 2 Corinthians about his painful visit. So he went and visited them. Evidently, it didn't go well. So he wrote another letter when he got back. So the third letter to Corinth is also lost to us. But I wish it weren't because 
Paul got saucy, evidently. Like, he was spicy in that one. And then he wrote a fourth letter, and that is our 2 Corinthians. You understand, even the numbering system here is a dumpster fire, right? Like, his first letter is actually 0 Corinthians, and the second letter is 1 Corinthians, the third's lost, the fourth is second. It's a mess. It's a mess. There was a third visit uh, after all this that Paul went and visited the Corinthians. Evidently, it went pretty well, but we're not really sure because, after all, it's Corinth. It's a gamble. You don't know. You don't know. Now, the good news is that a church was planted in a city that really needs it. The bad news is the church is a dumpster fire. Listen, it's not a problem when the lake is full of water. The problem is when the boat's full of water, right? And that's what's happening in that city. Now, there's actually some good news in this. Listen, when you're a boat on the lake, and let's say everyone around you is in the water drowning, and you start rescuing people, you start pulling people out of the water, and they come in dripping wet and splashing, what happens to the boat? All of a sudden, the boat has water in it, right? You see that? It actually comes from a good thing, but the boat starts to get messy too. So the solution to a dumpster fire church is not a church full of Pharisees, right? Like a a circle the wagons kind of church that hasn't heard a redemption story in decades, and there's lots of churches like that. That's not the solution patting themselves on the back, that they're holier than thou. We're better than that church in Corinth. That's not the solution. That's not the goal. So the goal is that the church would take new ground for the gospel and people would come in out of the water dripping wet. But when that happens, the boat starts to get a little wet too. There's mess inside the church. And so Paul is concerned about that. I mean, there's good in it, but, but still, this is a church he planted. This is a church he loves. And so he writes them this letter to try to put out the dumpster fire. And here's how it begins. First three verses. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is a very typical format of an introduction to an ancient letter. But what I don't want to do is just kind of gloss over and get started because in there, Paul is planting seeds that he will harvest throughout the rest of the letter. There's there's content in there. And granted, it is the typical three ingredients in the intro of an ancient letter, which would go author, audience, greeting. Okay? And you see that, author, audience, greeting. So if I were to write to you, I would say, Rick... To Redemption Chapel. What's up, my people? Something like that, right? Uh, but, but that's not what Paul says. Look at his greeting. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, they're a dumpster fire. 
Their culture's a dumpster fire. The church is a dumpster fire. Their lives are a dumpster fire. And it's okay because Jesus is really good at putting out fires. And so he says, grace and peace to you. From God, from Jesus. Now, what I want to do is spend a little bit more attention on the author and the recipients. Let's begin with the author. See out of the gates there, first word, Paul. Told you a little bit about him already. We'll, we'll come back to him in just a second. But he also says, and our brother Sosthenes. Now, Sosthenes was Paul's amanuensis. I don't see you writing that term down. Okay. A-M- no, don't worry about it. It's just a fancy way of saying Paul dictated, Sosthenes wrote it down. It's Paul's letter, but he was the guy writing it down. All right. Likely that guy. Now, Sosthenes, that name does appear one other place in the scriptures, and that's in Acts chapter 18, verse 17. It's recording when Paul was in Corinth, there was a ruler of the synagogue named Sosthenes. The Jews got upset and beat the tar out of him. It might be that that guy then later came to faith and is a traveling companion with Paul. That's really cool. We don't know that. But, but what we got to assume is that the reason Paul mentions his name is that he's known to the Corinthian church. They know him. Otherwise, he wouldn't even mention him. So that's Sosthenes. Now, Paul, he's really the author, and he introduces himself as an apostle. But he lays it on really thick. Like, look, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's like, whoa, Paul, easy. What are you saying, man? What's your point? And again, he's planting seeds because Paul's apostleship will be questioned in Corinth. It'll come up throughout the letter. So let's talk about apostles for just a moment. To be an apostle, okay, it, it just means a sent one. Okay, so there's a general use of it, but there's a technical official use of it. And to be one of the apostles... There has to be three things. You have to be called by Jesus. You have to have seen the risen Lord in the flesh. And then you have to have unique authority. And Paul has all three of those. If you look in verse 1, he says, I was called by Jesus. Okay? So he's called. But then also, you have to have seen the risen Lord. Here's later in the letter, in chapter 9, it begins this way. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? See how he equates those? You have to have seen Jesus to be an apostle. Uh, And then there's the unique authority aspect. Oh, by the way, on this one, that's why there's no longer any apostles today. The office is closed long ago. Unless you think you saw risen Jesus, go talk to Pastor Jared. Anyway, so... So anyway, so uh, the office is closed. So that's the second thing. The third thing is the unique authority. And it was these apostles then that Jesus would use to write the New Testament. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37. He says, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul is aware that he is writing scripture. Listen, the only way I can write a command of the Lord to you is if I quote scripture. I I don't write my own stuff and say, 
that's a command from God. I don't like Paul knew God was using him to record scripture. So what Paul's doing, listen, he is defending his apostleship throughout the letter. The word apostle appears 10 times in this letter. That's more than any other Pauline letter or epistle, right? That's part of what's going on. And that, that's really boring. <laughs> that's boring stuff. But uh, here's some cool stuff, some really cool stuff. There's a fantastic balance going on here. Paul is entirely self-effacing. Like, regarding himself, Paul is not a fan of Paul. Like, he disses his own background, his appearance, his speech, his abilities. Paul is not a, a fan of Paul. Uh, for example, look at another passage in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15, verses 8 through 10 say this. Paul is talking about how Jesus appeared to people. Remember, that's one of the things you have to have to be an apostle. And then he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. Do you sense the balance there? He's entirely self-effacing. Like about himself, he, Paul's not impressed with Paul. But he's entirely confident in two things, who God is and the fact that God had put a call on his life. And that's his identity that affects his reality. Paul is willing to not, he forgoes like worldly moxie, worldly, worldly machismo. Instead, he says, no, God is who he is, and he called me to this. And I think there's maybe something we can learn from that. Now, that is Paul introducing himself. He's planting seeds that he'll harvest as we study through this book together. But I'm really excited more to talk to you about the recipients of this letter. Now, remember, remember the church in Corinth, they are an absolute dumpster fire. And if you were Paul, and you're writing a letter to them, how would you address them? What would you call them as you address this letter? Gary sent this to me. Jared Wilson said there's two kinds of Pauline epistles. The first is, we are heirs through unfathomable grace to unimaginable glory. And the second kind of Pauline letter is, I am as a personal favor begging you sick little freaks to act normal for five minutes. 1 Corinthians is more in the second category, right? And yet, and yet, don't miss this, he doesn't call them sick little freaks. Look back at the introduction, look how he addresses them. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours grace and peace. Paul is saying, remember who you are. Remember who you are. When our kids were in elementary school, our, the school was close enough they could walk. But once they hit middle school, they could take the bus. And when they would go out the door to catch the bus in the morning, Shannon would always say to them, she'd say, remember who you are. She didn't say, be good. Caleb took full advantage of that. 
But what she was going for is, if you remember who you are, your identity should impact your reality. Remember who you are. Paul is saying to them, remember who you are. And what he says about them, he says, you were sanctified. To those sanctified. Notice that's past tense. Already happened to them. The word sanctified means to be made holy. And, and then he calls them saints. He said, you were called, past tense, you've been called to be saints. Which means God's holy people. Both of those terms have to do with holiness. Now let me talk about holiness for a second, because I think we, we get bunged up about that word somewhat. We sometimes feel like holiness, it's this harsh, unattainable standard that we'll never meet, and it has a bad emotional feel to us. Or what it calls to mind is like holier-than-thou, holy rollers, super spiritual, stuck-up religion. And we don't like that term. But I want you to know holiness is beautiful. Holiness is who God is. Holiness colors God's kingdom. Holiness is gorgeous. In fact, think of, the, think of a Nazi concentration camp. Just use this example. All the horror and the grossness and the evil and the torture that is there, and God's holiness stands in contradiction to that. God's holiness is beautiful. And we should desire, we want, we should long for it even more. And you kind of have it. Because the other, the other term that gets misunderstood is saints. So he calls them saints in there. There's tons of misinformation about the word saints. It comes from religion, particularly from Catholicism. And what Catholicism teaches is that saints are dead super Christians who are now in heaven, but they're super holy. They have two confirmed miracles, therefore they've been canonized by the Pope. As a result, they skipped purgatory, they went directly to heaven, their salvation is secure. And they have all this, they not only have plenty of holiness for themselves, they got tons of excess, so they can share it with normal spiritual punks like you and me. And so we, we're not holy enough to go directly to God, and so what we do is we pray to these dead saints, and they go to God on our behalf. One other thing, none of that's in the scripture. None of that's biblical. So what is a saint? Well, the term means, uh, the term is hagios in Greek, and what it means is a made holy one. One who has been made holy. Here's a question. Who made him holy? I'll give you a couple of hints. Right. Who made him holy? Did they make themselves holy or did Jesus make him holy? Here's the hints. Paul calls the Corinthian Christians saints. And they're a dumpster fire. They didn't make themselves holy. And in three verses, he speaks of Jesus five times. Who made him holy? Jesus made him holy. Jesus made him holy. And you'll see that really explicitly like in a verse like Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, that says this. Speaking of Jesus, it says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Oh, it's a great verse. Notice the first part of it where it says he has perfected. That is past tense. Wait a minute, I'm already perfected? In Christ, yes. It says, for all time, you, as one who, who has placed your faith in Jesus, been adopted by God as his child, 
that you have been perfected for all time, which means it can't be taken away from you. This is about normal Christians on earth. So a Christian equals a saint. A saint equals a Christian. That's all the term means. It's a synonym for Christian. It underscores the gospel. The gospel is not about what we do for God. It's all about what God has already done for us in Christ. And so what happens then is you are placed in Christ. The Bible says in Christ all the time. We as Christians are in Christ. That's our position. What that means is Jesus' righteousness is all around us. So when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. How much more holy can you be than that? You have been perfected in your holiness. You can't be anymore. And that's so secure. It's so secure. For all time, right? Now, what that does then is it allows me to talk about my mess. If we're on an earning system with God, talking about my mess is scary. But if I'm in Christ, perfectly righteous in Christ, I am secure. We can talk about our mess. And that's why Paul brags about, he says, I boast in my weaknesses. He's secure in Christ. Now, Look at Hebrews 10, 14 again. There's a great contrast in here between your position and your condition. You are positionally in Christ as a saint. You are in Christ. It is solid. It is secure. It is based on what Jesus did for you, period. That's your position in Christ right now for all eternity. But then at the end there, it says those who are being sanctified, which means there's some ongoing process that is a little up and down. That's your condition. You don't always act like your position. Your condition, let's be honest, it's a little roller coaster, isn't it? A little up and down, a little left and right. Sometimes a dumpster fire. That's your condition. So, if you look back at the passage then, while their condition is a dumpster fire, Paul is reminding them of their position, their identity. They are saints. Sanctified, set apart, called to be holy ones. He is saying, remember who you are and go live like it. We don't live like Jesus in order to become a saint. That won't work. We live like Jesus because we are saints. That's how it works out. Your position ought to impact your condition. But see, the Corinthians had divorced the two. And they looked a lot more like Corinth than they did look like their Lord Jesus. Claim Jesus as Lord and say a prayer, raise your hand, come forward, get baptized. And live like a dumpster fire. They had divorced these two. All right, now listen up. Listen. What if your biggest problem as a Christian is not what you do or what you don't do or what you've done? What if your biggest problem as a Christian is that you've forgotten who you are? You forgot your identity. Let me tell you about a a little girl named Lizzie. Uh, Lizzie was like, a lot of kids her age. She was a handful. She was a lot, a lot of trouble. 
Oh, my goodness. She was disobedient. She was disrespectful. She talked back to elders. She wouldn't do her chores. She wouldn't do her homework. She wouldn't eat her vegetables, wouldn't use table manners. She was a tough child. But one day, that changed, and little Lizzie started acting like a princess. Because it was on that day she found out she is a princess. And she would grow up to be Queen Elizabeth, ruler of all Great Britain. Now, what happened on that day? She didn't become royalty on that day. She found out who she already is, and it impacted her reality. She didn't start acting a certain way in order to become royalty. She found out she is royalty, and therefore she started acting a certain way. Not necessarily snooty or prideful, but with the character consistent with the privilege and responsibility of being royalty. That's what happened in her life. And this introduction is about identity. I want you to let your identity impact your reality, not the reverse. Not the reverse. Paul, as he writes to them, he says, you are the church that so happens to be in Corinth. That's interesting. He's saying, you are the church of God. You are saints. That's who you are. Oh, and you just so happen to live in Corinth. But they had forgotten that. And they had let Corinth become their identity. And it reflected in the reality. Listen, if you are a Christian, American is not your identity. It just so happens to be your location. Don't get it confused. Paul is saying, don't forget who you are. Listen, if you feel like you're a bad Christian, like too much of the world's filth has spilled over into your life, then this book that we are about to study, this book's for you. It's totally for you. I want you to know you are a saint. You are made holy by Christ. You are secure in Christ. You are loved by him. But know this, 1 Corinthians was not written to soothe you while you roll in your filth. And God has enough compassion to take you just the way you are, but he also has enough compassion to not leave you like that. God has so much more for you than just that. And he, you are called as a saint, you are sanctified for a purpose. He's got more for you than that. Remember who you are. In fact, what I want you to do this week, every day when you wake up, I want you to put a note by your bed if you have to. I want you to remind yourself that you are a saint. You belong to Jesus. You are claimed by him. You are in Christ. That's who you are. That's your identity. And when you go out into the world day after day this week and you hit situations, you hit decisions, you hit temptations, I want you to ask yourself, what would a saint do? And let your identity impact your reality. All right? I'm looking forward to studying this letter with you. For now, let me pray. Father in heaven, we can only come before you right now humble and thankful for what you've done for us. Because we admit, Father God, our lives, dumpster fires. Our culture, shoot, our church isn't above it. 
And yet you've called us to more. You've called us saints. You made our position completely perfect in Christ. We're seated in that right now. And I want to ask and I want to pray that our identity would impact our reality. That we would live like it. Father God, please put out the fire in our lives, uh, that messy fire, and then light the fire in our hearts that we would just live large for you. And I pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.